in three, two, one. Amateurs in sales score occasional wins. Professionals create consistent results. Top sales professionals don't make quota, they exceed quota. They don't make sales, they create customers. They don't dream of earning a good living, they are living the good life. My guest has captured the time-tested sales wisdom of great salespeople that realized early in their career that learning means earning. Join me now for my conversation with author and speaker, Paul Melchiori. Well, hey, Paul, welcome to the program. We're delighted to have you. Thank you, Michael. Excited to be here. Now, where are we talking to you from today? Okay, this background is, unfortunately, it's not a fake background. It's real. It looks beautiful, sunny day here in Philadelphia, Center City, Philadelphia. So this is my home for a majority of my life. So excited to be here from sunny Philadelphia. Great sports town, and you've got all those great teams there. In fact, if you turn the camera behind me, is Franklin Field. So my dad used to take me to the Eagles games in the late 60s. And they were terrible. I remember, I don't think they won a game in the years I went. And it's been a pretty good roller coaster ride, but I was in Minnesota in 17 when they won it. And it was really exciting in Arizona. I thought we had a shot, but and then we had the Phillies in a World Series. And if you're into real football or soccer, we had the Union in the finals and we lost all three. A good sports town. I've always been a Flyers fan. So back go. in the old Hexall days. So anyway, good <laughs> hockey town, good baseball town. You got it all. Yep. Now, Paul, we're here and we're going to be talking about your book. You've got a new book released with your partner, Mark, called Selling the Cloud, a playbook for success in cloud software and enterprise sales. But I got to put a disclaimer right out there now for our audience. In my mind, I've read your book. It should just be called a playbook for success, you know, s- selling how you ought to sell. And I know we've talked about that and how it applies. You're going to apply a lot of the metaphors and examples you use from your experience in software sales. But I'm here to tell you all of the principles that you talk about apply right across the board. Matter of fact, I tried to find an industry where it wouldn't apply and I just don't think it exists. So if you're in B2B sales, you're going to enjoy this conversation. Now, Paul, you've got 30 years. You started in Philadelphia. You and I have something in common. We both started selling newspapers. You started at 13 and so did I. You were <laughs> on the beaches of Wildwood, New Jersey. And how did you get from there to the path you took to where you arrived here, where you're now, you're writing about this and talking about it. How did you get into the business? What was that path like for you? Well, I always thought I'd be good in, in something, right? And growing up, selling was just something that I enjoyed. It's meeting people. It's helping them because hopefully what you're selling is providing a service or a product that helps the customer. And I always feel that that's what it's always about. And this profession has given me an opportunity to travel around the world, to meet some of the most interesting people, to make a lot of money. When you sell, you're almost your own boss. If you sell a lot, you got a good commission plan, you're going to make good money. And so I think really going full circle, coming out of college, joined ADP. It was kind of a technology company, stayed in tech, got lucky because SAP decided to set up their headquarters right behind me here in Philadelphia in the late 80s, early 90s. So it was there when it was a startup company. Now it's the GDP of a small country. So being able to kind of ride those waves with SAP and Ariba and more recently Anaplan, you know, really been lucky to be in the profession. And it just happened to be selling technology and enterprise software. But you're right. I think when we sat down, Mark and I, to put this together, Our experiences just happened to be in B2B software, but we wanted to put something together that was really applicable to a lot broader audience. So anybody that's in that profession, 
regardless of what you're selling, who you're selling to. A lot of those principles, if you go through each of those chapters and all the experts we kind of brought into the book, they're all successful for a lot of different reasons, and they would have been successful in any business, right? And so right. I think you're right. It's a very good foundational element. If you're getting into the selling profession, you've been in the selling profession, regardless of what you're selling, I think this book does really have a lot of applicability to anyone who's in the profession. Yeah, I would agree with you. And your story from the Titans inside the book, each chapter has highlighted different Titans. And the one thing that they all seem to have in common, and it's actually the leading chapter of your book, chapter one, passion and mindset. And how important is that? It really is. You, know, you think about this job and it's not a nine to five job. It's a difficult job. And I think in baseball, what is it? You hit three times out of 10 and you're like an all-star, right? You right. hit three times out of 10 selling, you're probably looking for another job, right? So yeah, yeah. you better have a passion for it. And I think the mindset, especially today, it's just Everything's more difficult today. I think things are more challenging. The world is just a more difficult place. And it was like that even before the COVID stuff. And I think if you have the right mindset, customers sense that. They feel it. And it allows you to go to work every day and treat it like a profession that's fun, as opposed to a job just to put food on the table. And I think that passion and mindset in our business is very transferable. They sense it. They feel it. They know what you're all about, they, whether you're on the phone, on a Zoom, in front of them face-to-face. -face. If they feel you have a passion for your product, for your company, for your service, they see you have a stable mindset, that comes through in the selling process and in a very positive way. And I think the best in the business, they don't get too high on the highs, they don't get too low on the lows, because it's easy to get really excited about you know right. selling. And it's also very easy to get very depressed when times aren't good. So having that even keel, that mindset critically important. And Gearhart, who was our Titan in that area, that's what he does for a living. And he's always been about the mindset. And the first time I just really didn't get it. I'm like, well, I don't understand. And then the more I thought about it, the more you realize how important it is for the profession. Yeah. I think that's what gets us out of bed every day. And you have to understand the process because it's changed. It's always evolving. I remember in the day when software first came out, I remember Microsoft coming in, in the eighties, windows came out and we actually sold boxes. It was a mm -hmm. box. I was in the CRM world. So mm -hmm. you know, working with everything from Act to Maximizer to Goldmine to Siebel mm -hmm. to some of the bigger enterprise systems. So I've sold everything in between and spoken and trained in that environment. We used to sell multi-million dollar boxes, if you will. Yep. And then when software as a service came out, he described that just for our audience who mm -hmm. may be not familiar with SaaS or what, give us that brief definition of what software as a service and why companies went that way. Yeah. If you think of it, it's really a delivery, right? So the software has been around a long time and CRM is a great example that you bring up, Michael, for years, whether it was Actor Goldmine or enterprise systems like Siebel, which was yeah. the by far de facto standard and SAP in those kind of mid to late 90s, early 2000s. And then Mark Benioff came in and he gave you 80% of the functionality at 20% of the price. And you say to yourself, well, how did he do that? And it really was just in delivery. And so instead of buying a bunch of hardware, getting technical people to set it up, they had a centralized capability. And that whole SaaS software, it's been around for a long time. If you think back of ADP with the mainframe, they used right. to deliver payrolls on a truck. So that somebody would go out, take the information, write it down, they'd bring it back to the mainframe, they'd process the checks on the mainframe, and then the truck would deliver the payroll once a week. So that concept really hasn't changed. It's just when that delivery vehicle of software as a service became kind of commonplace, and I 
give a lot of the credit to Salesforce and Mark Benioff because he really pioneered getting it into mainstream, not really inventing it, and just really delivering something that CRM been around forever in a more efficient way. And I think then you saw companies like AWS and Google Cloud and Azure now become kind of these infrastructures. And it's really become almost the only way to consume software today. If you think about your Apple iPhone or Google Pixel, I mean, that's all software as a service. You just happen to have the mainframe in your pocket now. You're holding the computer. Exactly. And so the paradigm shifted a lot from when you and I were kind of peddling hardware back in the IBM 34 days, and it's just a different delivery vehicle. And and I don't think it's going to change much. And it's really enabling kind of that next generation of software delivery with the high-powered AI models and machine learning models that really are, I think, going to change the way job functions operate, specifically in the enterprise. Yeah, no, I would agree with you. And it's made life easier. We don't have to send CDs all over the place and everybody makes sure it's all installed properly. And it creates that monthly recurring revenue, which is really the name of the game. So it's just reducing churn, obviously, and building on that base. Now, you say in your book that software as a service has turned the selling of software upside down in all the best ways, but how has it changed and why is it working for B2B sales as well? And if you look about what it had and how it worked before, like when I first started, it was a very different sales cycle, a very different go-to-market approach. You sold somebody one time and they probably had that software for eight, nine, 10 years, right? So you sold, you hunted, if you will, and then you right. moved on to the next customer. Well, with software as a service, the cycle times are much shorter. You can do one, maybe two, three-year contracts. So it's not like somebody's buying something and it's guaranteed to be in there for 10 or 15 years, like the traditional mainframe IBM days. And so I think that changes the way you operate, the way you sell, the way you service, and the way the customers buy. I think that's the biggest you know, kind of fundamental shift is that before the buying process was very centralized, you know, IT or senior executives controlled the spend in a very small group, and they'd buy these large packages like Oracle or SAP or something from IBM. And now the buying is being pushed into the divisions, the operational business units, the people who actually use the software, and then they can buy it relatively inexpensive with little or no upfront costs relative to big capital investment. And then they can use it. And if it doesn't work in a year, they throw it out or in a month, right? It depends on the length of the subscription. So it has really turned it upside down in the way people buy software now. So that's obviously changed the way people have to sell. So the whole go-to-market process has dramatically changed with this new technology. And I just see that only continuing to escalate as buyers become more knowledgeable. They know more sometimes about the company than the salesperson going in to sell them, which is embarrassing, but that's just the reality. These buyers are very educated. They're very smart. They have incredible information accessible to them through internet sources or just third-party consultancies that by the time they're ready to buy, they know a lot about what they're buying. Where in the past, they really use the salespeople to help educate them through the process. Yeah, the knowledge source was the salesperson. And in my mind, it should be today, but it can't be just about the software. As you said, we were selling in the early days, cutting our teeth. Usually the decision was made by one person, maybe the IT director or VP of IT, maybe it was operations, wherever it was. And today there's more consensus 
building that's required within that account, multiple layers. And like you say, the investment's not so high, which is what makes it attractive and it reduces that cost. And then the key is to make it as sticky as possible, obviously, so that jump from one solution to another solution as in CRMs or whatever, if they're not getting the adoption from their salespeople. How do you see from a skill point of view, how has that evolved, say, pre-pandemic? We talk to our clients all the time and they ask us, well, how do you see things five, 10 years from now? And we would paint the picture for them. Well, the pandemic has pretty much accelerated all that. And I think you'd agree to we're there now. What happened in five or six more years, we're already there. This episode is sponsored in part by Rainmaker Digital Solutions, featuring Active Campaign. Looking to drive growth with customer experience automation? Active Campaign, the number one marketing automation platform for e-commerce, B2C and B2B companies, gives you the email marketing, marketing automation, and CRM tools you need to create incredible customer experiences. Active Campaign is the platform we use to reach, nurture, convert, and grow our business, and you can use it to grow yours. You can see why 150,000 plus businesses like yours choose Active Campaign to help them grow and become preferred in the markets they serve. You can also start your free trial by visiting our website and clicking on the Active Campaign trial link. As a bonus, we'll also give you a digital copy of my book, Becoming Preferred, How to Outsell the Competition. And in the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder in the company. And now back to my conversation with Paul Melchiori. What are the things that salespeople need to focus on today and put their expertise? So maybe we've got somebody who's just getting into sales. Maybe they have a side mm -hmm. gig, yep. side hustle of some sort. What are maybe two or three skill sets or things that they should work on that they need to really master if they're going to be successful in sales today? I think it has accelerated. I think all these trends that we see today we're kind of beginning to evolve. Like hybrid work was already talked about. I mean, Zoom was invented. It wasn't like we didn't have web conferencing and some of these ways of selling before COVID, but it just accelerated. So when things accelerate, fortunately or unfortunately, it does leave people behind. So the skill sets required are a little different, right? So I think communication skills obviously have always been important in selling. Knowledge has always been important. You should know what you're selling. And I think people respond very well today to that relationship selling or consultative selling. So if you think about those couple of areas, why they're so important. So I think first off, listening and communicating, it may have been a lot easier when you just would take somebody to golf or you go to dinner or you were having longer time to build a relationship. Well, today, not only you don't have that time. You need to still build a relationship because I do feel, Michael, people still buy from people. There's a whole section on trust-based selling, which we can probably spend an hour just talking right. about how important that is. But then how do you build that today, right? In the past, maybe we would build that relationship over a 6, 12, 18-month time period and sell a 10 or $15 million deal. Well, now we don't have 6, 12, 18 months. We got 6 days, 12 days, maybe a month to build a relationship. So how do you do that in today's kind of fast-moving world? And I just tell people the communication methods of the buyer may be different than the way you like to communicate. So if they like to pick up the phone and chat for a while, then you might have to pick up the phone and call it. I always tell my kids, you know, these phones actually do work. You can actually call somebody. With these, <laughs> That's right? a lot of start. It's not just yeah. texting and email oh. or whatever, you know, is used. And yeah. I do think that uh, some of the old school techniques of maybe picking up the phone and calling does work. It really does. I think some people are getting so accustomed to Zoom now, a lot of times they'll think, wait, is this person recording the Zoom? What can I say or not say? 
even regardless of who's on it, where if you're on the phone sometimes, they may be more open to talking to you about why their boss is really not helping with the selection process or what do we need to do to get the deal done and maybe expose some procurement uh, secrets in the company that they might not expose on a Zoom type event. So I think, you know, the communication skills are just so important. And look, you could build relationships now via text, via Zoom, without being face-to-face. You can swipe right. You can swipe right. People swipe right to hook up. It's like in our day. You had to go to the bar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it just, it's however you communicate, you just have to work hard at it. It's not a one size fits all. I think a lot of sales trips, they get into that one size. Or what I have seen is a lot of the folks, maybe in our generation, they've lost the ability to kind of communicate today's world. And the buyers are younger. The decision makers are more diverse. You got to be flexible in how you communicate. And I think the knowledge piece is so critical today because remember we talked about the salesperson used to be the kind of source of knowledge. Well, they get all that knowledge on the internet or through the third-party consultancy firm. So really they're looking for a trusted consultant to figure out how they can apply your product or service in their environment, the most effective way that makes them successful. And that is a whole different ballgame. That's not just talking about the features and functions and capabilities. It's figuring out and being kind of creative. And so I look for salespeople with that EQ, not just the IQ. And I always like to take students from B schools because they're hustlers, they're smart, they figure it out, right? They're not just book smart. And so I think that's a skill set because you still need to build the trust. To win the business. Right. And you cover that chapter seven, chapter eight of the book. You've got trust-based go-to-market models mm-hmm. and you talk all about trust and it's the foundation of all relationships, right? So can we have one without trust? Of course, but we always lose to one where trust exists. So how do we do it quickly? And, and to your point, we've got five generations of buyers in the marketplace. We're 19 channels of communication and we're just using one or two of them. And we have to meet them where they're at. And every generation builds trust differently. And it can be done, but it's understanding them. And there's some strategies to do that, which brings us to the process of this. How and more importantly, why should sales teams have a customer first mentality or approach instead of just products and services and hawking, hey, here's features and benefits. Why should it be customer focused and customer first mentality? Yeah. and, And I see a lot of companies, it's like their tagline, but then you realize, it's a tagline. It's not what they're living. Yep. And I think I, I mentioned in the book a couple of examples. I might have changed the names to protect the guilty, but we actually would have relationships with a company and an individual in that company. And if you build that trust, you communicate properly, you do the right things, and you put that person first, not even right. just the customer, we put that person first because people are buying, especially in large companies, they may be representing a large company, but they typically have a personal reason why they're involved in buying this, right? And I think from that perspective, if you have an ability to understand what they're looking to buy and what it is is going to make them successful, you build that relationship. That's a lifelong relationship. And let's face it, people don't go to the same company forever now. They tend to move, right? They go from Merrill Lynch to Bank of America, then that gets bought. They go to JP Morgan. I mean, they just, one insurance company to the next, they just float around the industry. And I think the example in the book was a pharma company went from Bristol Myers to to Merck to another pharma. And so when these people go to their next company, if you've built that solid trust and treat people in a customer first, people first approach, not just worrying about my commission and about me, 
they remember that. And let me tell you, when they go to that next company, the first call they get, hey, Paul, I know you moved companies, but I need you to come in here because I know you can help me. And that's the yeah. best situation. And uh, absolutely, when that happens, you're making friends and you're doing the right thing. Well, you get business that way and you can lose business that way too. If you've done a bad job, somebody comes in and they bring in their incumbent. And, and you're right, it's taking a long-term approach to the game. And it's not just when we close the sale. So in traditional sales, we think of closing the sale as the end goal. But in your book, you, you say that closing in sales is the beginning. It's the beginning of the relationship, which I agree with 100%. It's kind of like when you get married, that's not, oh, sh I'm done now. Hey, I don't wear <laughs> flowers anymore and do whatever. That's the beginning of the agreement, right? And so can you explain that a little bit as far as having that end goal and that lifelong desire to maintain those relationships? Why that's Yeah, important? and I, th I think the SaaS software has accelerated that as well, Michael, in that, look, marriage example, I'll stay away from that one because there's a 60% divorce rate or something in the country. So we right. obviously haven't figured that one out, right? But right. if I look at what it takes to retain, and you look at some of the most important metrics that we have when we evaluate companies, it's retention, right? And how are they retaining right. their customers? Because it's a lot harder to sell a new customer. You got to go through procurement and security review and all the gyrations that these companies put you through to bring on a new supplier. So it's always a lot easier to expand your footprint in existing customers. And that's where hopefully more than 50% of your business should come from. So in order to do that, you can't sell and run or you can't sell and throw it over the fence to your deployment or implementation people. You have to really stay in that relationship and make sure because things change in these companies every day, right? I mean, not only is the world around us changing, but the world around the people who bought that changes. Their organization changes. There's new players continually coming in. There's new executive priorities. And if you're not in tune with that, working with your customer on an ongoing basis, then you're going to be left behind. And that's why we look at retention as such an important component and having that ability to maintain that, that trusted relationship, understanding the organization, knowing what's going on at the company, know what's going on with your buyer what's working, what's not working with the products, or you can be the liaison back into development or in the product delivery organizations to really help ensure the customer is getting value out of the product. Because if you're stuck with a product that is just impossible to rip out and it's too costly, then you survive. But if you've got right. a product where you can go get some other product and it's not that hard to replace it, and it's not going to cost you that much to do so, then you'll do it, right? And so that's what SaaS has kind of changed and that what allows people to make choices. They're not stuck with platforms like they used to be in the past. So if you're not there with them, understanding, continuing to evolve with them, then they're going to have other choices. And chances are they'll take their business somewhere else. Right. We need to know what the possible outcome of that particular solution, whatever it is, whether it's software or a widget, what kind of impact is that going to have? And the bottom line, and what's the ROI to it? We need to know how it impacts their business. Absolutely. You say in the book, we should sell like you. And I love that. When you fight against your own intrinsic nature, failure is inevitable. Unpack that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, you've got to be authentic, right? I think you got to be right. yourself. And I think there's a whole section on authenticity. Yeah, you have an acronym, CARE, creative, authentic, yeah, um, and, and, resilient. Yeah, empathy. and people know when you're not being yourself. I mean, look, some of us are better actors than others. I mean, there is Los Angeles and <laughs> there's the movies and there's right. some people that are really good at sales that you would never think. They almost believe themselves, you know, but that right. that's hard to do, right? And so I think 
especially with today's buyer being so educated and smart and perceptive relative to maybe buyers in the past, they see right through it. Just like I said, if you don't have that passion, they sense it. If you're not authentic, then they know that you're not doing it. And in today's world, you do have to be creative. There's not a a robotic approach to sales. I mean, there's a million sales books, don't get me wrong. And a lot of them give you a lot of value and are very educational. And there's tidbits from every book that I think has value. But at the end of the day, the customer is looking at you as the salesperson and as a consultant, as a potential friend. And if you're not authentic, if you're not creative in ways to solve their problems, you know, they're going to know it's not you. And then that whole trust factor starts to get diminished. And I always say that the person who loses the most trust through the cycle, chances are they're not going to win the business, right? And so even if you start out with an even playing field, which we know isn't always even, these cycles could take three, six, nine months. You're with these people, maybe for the better part of a year from the beginning first contact to when the deal actually gets funded. And so a lot can go right or wrong in that time period. And I always say, be yourself, be authentic. Don't try to be somebody else or pretend you're someone else in the cycle, because chances are the customer's going to figure it out. Well, and you talk about this in the book, it's all about the story we tell. And if we follow that hero's journey model, where there's the apex of the story, we start out with the problem, the guide steps in, the guide's not the hero of the story, the client should be the hero of the story. And our role as sales professionals, in my opinion, and I'm sure you agree, we should be the guides. So we're the Obi-Wan Kenobis. We don't come in and try and sell Luke Skywalker a lightsaber and go, hey, got a really cool lightsaber. It'll help you take on Darth Vader and the boys. We don't do that. Instead, they want to solve their problems. They need us to help guide their problems and help them avoid the landmines, right? Help them avoid the traps, the things that are going to cause them trouble or experience in the end. And that to me is the role of the salesperson today. It's to help guide through that. You're in agreement with that? Yeah. And I think storytelling, we touch on that. Think about it. If you're in buyer's shoes, they're getting bombarded with information. They're doing research. And they only probably buy software a few times in their career, right? They're not doing this for a living, right? So we do this for a living. We're doing it every day. We're selling every day. Buyers aren't buying every day, right? The operational people, now procurement's a whole different animal, but they really don't buy anything. It's the users who go to procurement and say, hey, I need you to buy this for me. And so that's a whole different process. But the person who's going to use whether the product, service, technology, whatever, they're the ones that are going through that process. And I think for them, it's a once, twice, maybe three times in a life basis. So they're they're confused, right? They don't really understand how it all works. And if you can bring in stories that bring their problems to life and shows how maybe other customers in their business or people they know solved it, And that story becomes very visible to them. Like, oh, now I get it. That's so impactful. I mean, it's like anything else. Somebody hands you a booklet with very fine print. Chances are you might read some of it. If they, you know, send you a video clip or with a story attached to it and you explain it to them, it's kind of a whole different way of doing it. And I, I just ran across an example of that where my mom, who's a little older, she has the best recipe for the Italian gravy, right? It's it's sauce, right? Pasta. Right. And she doesn't have a great book. And I remember my grandmother had this great recipe. She never wrote any of this stuff down. It was always in their heads. And so <laughs> when they try to write it down, they can't even write it down because they don't even know what's in it, right? They, so they do it to taste, yeah. Yeah, so now we just videotape it, right? We said, yeah. Mom, go ahead. We're going to sit back here and watch you do it. 
And sure enough, she takes a pinch of that, a pinch of that. And so I think the perception of the story or seeing things, and there's actually companies now that are out there that actually you can send instead of sending an email, it sends a video clip and a story. I think that's a way to do it. I mean, people are doing more short little stories or video clips and using that to sell as opposed to the direct communication or the email blast or the case study of some sort. So if you could put it into a story, a video, a way of communicating that people tend to definitely appreciate more than than PowerPoint, let's say. Well, they listen to those stories and we're conditioned that way. You know, I've got grandchildren now and it's like, hey, go get ready and Papa, I'll read you a story. Yeah, And it's a motivator, right? And you can come in to see people. And if you start telling them facts and figures versus, let me tell you a story about a particular client, they'll listen to the story. We're conditioned Mm -hmm. that way. So story should be part of it. You talked about process. You teach in the book that process is more important than a playbook. And I think that was an important distinction. Playbooks are important. We develop our playbooks. I always kind of viewed myself as an offensive coordinator coming in yeah. a playbook. But what I'm really designing is a process, a sales process or an approach process. And that's really what it is. We just kind of characterize it as a playbook. And I know you use those interchangeably. Talk about why process is so important in today's world. Yeah. And I think a lot of it's semantics, right? I mean, if you go back right. to the football analogy or whatever, you have a playbook and you go in with a game plan. And then at halftime, you throw that game plan out and you make adjustments to that plan. And really, that's all part of an overall planning process around your whole, you know, go to the game plan or your go to market plan. Because playbooks really restrict how you do things and what you do, right? So that to me is a bigger kind of challenge. If A does this, then you do B. It's not that simple, unfortunately, especially in complex selling. So if you have a process, you have certain steps in that process that you have to kind of check box and accomplish. And a lot of times people short circuit to try to get to the finish line earlier. They try to do things to skip steps or skip pieces of the process. And I think it doesn't really matter what sales process you follow, right? Because there's a lot of them out that have been out there since the early Xerox days and pretty much everyone's copied everybody else and there's variations. So I've never been hung up on what process you use just as long as you all use the same process. Because it becomes very important when you're starting to analyze your customer base, when you're looking at forecasting. And I'll tell you, one of the biggest issues companies have today is accurately forecast. And the reason being is they're not following a process and they really don't know where a deal sits in the process. They're guessing. They're they're guessing. guessing. Yeah, Yeah. guessing is usually not good. You talk about that. You talk about process, or we could call it a pipeline as well, mm-hmm. and to prioritize your pipeline because it's yeah. your lifeblood and have a standardization in your pipeline. And we always recommend inside those pipelines to have micro commitments, a series of micro commitments. So yep. we don't move to step seven until we've finished six. Mm-hmm. And we go through and we call it stopping for yellow lights. Yeah. Right. So if all of a sudden you get to where there's a roadblock or the light turns yellow, well, it's a good example. You and your wife, you're on your way to a movie. The movie starts at 7.30. You're out the door. You're 20 minutes late, but you got your seats reserved and you're bombing down the road on the way to the theater. You want to get a Coke and a popcorn. And all of a sudden the light ahead of you turns yellow. What do we do? And what we're supposed to do is slow it down. We're supposed yeah. to slow it down because we risk crashing, right? Yeah. And that's when the deal can fall off the road. And so salespeople, I see them all the time when they run into a yellow light, they hit the accelerator and try and punch through it instead of sticking with that. Hey, I got to make this light stop first, 
then make it turn green and then proceed in the process. Great example. And so yeah. And process I think is important. And I know you teach about pipeline and that can all be part of your technology and redefining it on a constant basis, right? Mm-hmm. The process, some people over process, right? It's like a balance and that. And if that light's going to be yellow for five minutes, then slow down, make sure no cars are coming and then slowly proceed. But the natural instinct is to try to skip steps in the process. As salespeople, we're always kind of impatient people, maybe in general. And maybe that's what makes us good at what we do. But practice and patience and making sure you don't skip steps, don't take shortcuts. And if you do that, you'll have a much more accurate pipeline to kind of forecast from. And that just makes it easier to run the business. Yep. Perfect. Paul, if you were to start over knowing what you know now and knowing the conditions in the marketplace as it is today, how would you get into it? What would be your approach? What would you do that is new? That's maybe where it's evolved to and how salespeople who are maybe considering career changes or want to excel within that change. How would you redo that again? If you were doing a do over today? Yeah. I mean, look, it's always good to have a, you know, a second or third or fourth chance and do a do over. But I think for the younger folks that I meet, and what I tell them is like, look, first of all, are you really sure you want to be in this profession? And if you're doing it for all the wrong reasons, then just then just don't and just get out, right? I think a lot of people are in the business because they think they have to be and their mindset's not good. They don't have a passion for it. They're miserable at their job. They hate their job. And look, you spend a 30-year life in your job, at least. You really want to like the people you work with. You want to like what you do, because if not, then you're going to have all kinds of other issues. So that's the first thing I would tell young folks coming in, if I had a chance to do it over, is that, am I sure I really want to be in this profession? Because a lot of people are maybe confused about it, or they don't know it. It's okay to try it and decide you don't want to do it. But I think once you decide that you have a passion for the profession and you want to be in selling, I think getting with the right company and the right situation is really important because there's a lot of crappy companies out there. There's a lot of crappy products to sell and you don't want to be stuck selling something you don't believe in. So I think patience, which we talked about before, which we don't have as generation or as a profession, but being patient and picking the right opportunities where A, you feel comfortable with the product solution service that you're selling, that you can put your customers first. So I think that's important because all the things that we talk about in the book, if you're not comfortable in what you're selling, the company, the people, the support, all those things, then chances are you're going to not be good at it. So that to me would be the first thing. Going back, I would say, look, some of these companies, now I was fortunate enough to work for some pretty decent companies, but in the times where it wasn't good, you knew that it's probably not something you should be doing. You're not comfortable about selling. You don't even know if it's ever going to work. And then you're trying to sell something to somebody that may harm their career. Well, that's not good. So I would say, looking back, these are the things that you want to look, A, make sure you're in the profession for the right reasons. B, pick those companies, even if it's not the company with highest salary, the best commission plan. But I always say in the earlier stages of your sales career, is there somebody that I'm working for or with that I'm going to learn from and my career is going to advance? Because I see a lot of people get into jobs and they're like, yeah, my boss, I know more than here. She, it's not really working out. Chances are that's not going to be a good career path. And I say, get out of those situations, or if you can, don't even get in them. And you'll know when the situation's right. You're selling product that you like, service that you like, you're passionate about it. You enjoy doing it. You're willing to learn more and more about what it is you're doing. You're willing to become that expert, that advisor. 
you love the environment that you're working in, your boss, your boss's boss, you're learning from them. That's the environment you really need to be in to excel in this profession. If you're not in that environment, get out. Some people just hang on way too long, even if they're making good money. And I know it's hard, but they know they're in a bad situation, but they're making good money. And I don't know how tough it is out there. I don't want to make the move, especially today, right? People are laying off. A lot of people are in their jobs, what they call a quiet quitting. It's harder to do that in sales, but you could do it. So if you're quiet quitting in your sales job now, just quit and go find something else to do. You'll be way ahead. Well, and you talk about the continuous learning process too. I know you've been a student of learning from day one and that's what keeps it fresh. I ask audiences all the time, I'll say, how many books, raise your hands, how many books do you read? Business books, sales books, marketing books. And it boggles my mind. You know, I get one, two, zero, and people are honest about it. And it's like they're on a little treadmill and they're just little hamsters in the wheel going around and around versus those who are the real rainmakers who are Mm -hmm. learning, working on continuous improvement. The models are evolving. So we stay relevant and it's a great job. It's a great career if you stay relevant. It's really mental fitness and staying mentally strong. What tips do you have for that to maintain that inner mindset? Yeah. And I think that's really, really important. And I look and say, what did I learn today? And sometimes it's reading a book. Sometimes it's reading an article. Sometimes it's sitting for two hours behind the screen, doing research, whatever mechanism it is to learn. And I talk to a lot of people, really listen to a lot of what's going on, because I know if I'm not relevant in what I'm trying to do now, especially we're selling to cybersecurity firms, we're working with AI and ML. I mean, these are all new areas. And if you don't know what's going on in those areas, so you'll read up on the company. And I think that the people who take the time to do the homework, I mean, look, homework was always something I know was never good at it in college. <laughs> and I hated it. And I was like, oh, I've got to get to do homework. And I tell my kids too, that are still in school, the two younger ones, I say, look, you've got to do your homework. I'm like, I hate homework. I'm like, yeah, I know, but there's a reason why you're doing it. And you want to build that homework muscle. Some of the best reps that I've worked with, and there's a few that just pop them in my head when I think about it, is they, they just do so much homework. They're listening to the 10K call or the earnings call of their prospect. And they listen to all of them. I'm like, you sit on a call for four hours, you read a 10K, it's 500 pages. I'd much rather read a book or some novel or something fun by the pool, but they're reading and listening to these earnings calls. And it got me. I'm like, okay, now I get it. They're doing homework. They're learning. And when they go to meet the prospective customer, they may know more about the initiatives of the company by listening to that earnings call than the employee that's worked for the company for 10 years. And so I I just think that knowledge is power. I know that's a cliche and people respect people with knowledge. And the first thing I did when I went to Anaplan, that's I guess 2016, is our guys weren't doing their own demo. So I sat down and I studied how to do a fairly sophisticated supply chain demo as the head of sales for the company. And I got up on stage at the kickoff and did that demo. And people were, oh my God, what what, what didn't take that much homework to do, but it sent a message that, look, you better be prepared. And if you're a rep and you're just going to bring in your posse of support people, that's just not going to be it. You got to be knowledgeable enough to get credibility with the prospect. And then you can bring in experts when it gets pretty technical, et cetera. So I think it's always important to stay current, especially today, Michael. I mean, stuff is moving so fast. I get behind because I can't keep up with it all. 
And so a lot of times I'll cheat and pick up the phone and call the expert and say, hey, I need a 30-minute tutorial here on this particular topic, especially getting into things like cyber. And, and it's just so complicated. And we're living in a world where everything has to be protected. And I'm not a cybersecurity expert, but I had to become one when we started doing business with a lot of them. So if you don't do the homework, you don't quest for that knowledge, it's not going to happen by osmosis. So whether your thing is reading books, listening to stories, Audible, it doesn't really matter long as you do your homework. I would agree. And well said. We're going to put all the contact information and all the links to your site. The site is sellingthecloud.io. And whether you're selling in the cloud or enterprise or small, medium business, the principles all work. And you've got some great chapters in there from customer success to their technologies, to trust, to creativity, problem solving, lots of great anecdotes. The lessons from the Titans that you listen to each of the chapters is excellent. And there was a great line in the last part of your book. And I thought this was great advice. And we can end with this. It says, listen, show up consistently, do good work, be honest, learn from your mistakes. And these simple things are truly the bread and butter of success. So you couldn't say it any better than that. Hey, real pleasure having you, Paul. This is great advice, great wisdom. And most importantly, it's applicable and you can start using it tomorrow. Absolutely. So thanks for being our guest today. Thank you very much. It was absolutely fun. This podcast is created and associated with Summit Media. My executive producer is Beth Smith and director of research, Tori Smith. The fee for the show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting. This podcast is subject to copyright by Summit Media. Goodbye.